You said when referring to movement as the gateway to an optimized mind, right? So you use the, the the example of you know becoming better a better thinker or mathematician. You mentioned applying a, spe- a specific methodology, and I'm curious what that methodology is. You said as long as you're metho- uh, methodical or, or, or you're applying a, a specific methodology, I don't want to quote you. This is really the heart of my work. This is really what most people don't know about my work. They cannot appreciate it and because they will never know it from outside. This is truly the essence of what I call movement practice. I don't need to take my shoes off to count the number of people that I believe are addressing it well from my point of view. Of course, it's just my point of view. Why? Because some systems are all about the protocols. If you get the right protocol, you get the result. But this practice is all about error management. It's not about the protocol. You can, I can give you all the protocols as people are doing, and you still have no results whatsoever in terms of general movement development, etc. Because it's all about managing the day-to-day problems that are arising individually. So, for example, in our online uh, platform that we offer people training, there is no program you can get. You, you can't buy a program. It's all individual, and you are being monitored by a person on the other side, constantly receiving feedback, which makes it very cumbersome, very expensive, and very difficult to do in terms of sending videos and being all the time being watched and being... But it is the real practice. And that is also something that actually appears in almost everything, also in bodybuilding. For example, you can give me your program. It doesn't mean nothing. It has many aspects of problem solving day to day that I need to learn how to do. This is the order in the chaos. And the way that I try to switch the task and construct the practice as I go along the way, and I try to do the same with my students. Of course, you make many mistakes, but because my focus has been on it for many decades, I, I've, I've, I've gained certain insight into the, in this process. And I, and I see that a lot of people, that's where they fail. They, they try to get certain protocols. They just try to repeat the protocols, whether it's a, you know, chemical protocols, uh, whether it's nutritional protocols, whether it's a movement protocol, it's just bad protocols. It, 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 it gives something, but the real secret is not there, especially in this practice. The real secret is not there. It's super individualized. Every scenario changes and switches, and it's never the same. You never step into the same river twice. You know, I'm very curious about your childhood. So in North America, school is... I'm sure you're familiar with somewhat about the North American schools. Did you grow up in, in Israel? Yeah. Was your was your experience as a child one of of you know convention? Was it normal? Was it you know quote unquote normal? Meaning you went to like in America, you know, you go to a certain school or Canada. I'm from Canada. Go to a certain school. You learn the same curriculum as everybody else. You line up in a line. You get in trouble if you're not in line. It's it's inside a box. And I'm curious where the the inspiration for this depth of exploration and curiosity came from? I think um, part of it is something that emanates 
from inside. Some combination, some lucky combination of attributes. Uh, I haven't been blessed with many physical attributes or that I would really could have used during my, my practice. Um, but certain other attributes of way of thinking, way of feeling, certain sensitivity was there. And the second part is proper environment for self-education. And this, my mother has been a big part of that. Instead of educating me, she took care that I will educate myself, which was a much smarter and an intuitive way for her. She, she didn't need to specifically think about it, some of the things she did, but other things she just naturally understood, which allowed me to construct certain way of being, which is very resilient, is very autonomous, and it enabled me to, to navigate my life, I think, in, in a better way in, in many scenarios. And this relates to what you mentioned, all these rules and all these educational attempts that are being slapped on us, which are actually robbing us the opportunity of developing the real skill behind everything. For example, uh, if you tell me um, not to lie as a parent, you make me a slave. Even if I don't lie, I'm not doing it from any motive of my own. I'm doing it out of fear. I'm doing it out of trying to please, etc. So this is not actually genuinely rising from me and occurring from the right place, but opposite. I've been now robbed of that opportunity to a large extent. While if you create the conditions in which I will feel the sting of my lies naturally and alone, then you would educate me in a passive way much more deeply and will affect me for the rest of my life. And I think that we receive certain opportunities of that sort, but most of these opportunities are being stolen in modern culture in that regard. Hence, we are growing into these machinery things, which we, we, we view as normal these days. And um, it, it carries a lot of problems. And uh, at least on the other side, you again, at a certain point in life and with certain difficulties and, and depression or sense of empty uh, meaninglessness, you are having the opportunity to regain that. And that connects a lot to my practice. I've heard one Steve Paxton said that uh, he, he, he created this um, contact improvisation, the, this practice, because he wanted to finish his physical development, which he never was allowed to finish as a child. So it's very similar for me. I, 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 I continue to create for myself the opportunities for self-education, not by reading the books and again, getting the no, 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 don't do this, do this, etc., but by receiving opportunities to naturally feel and sense my mistakes and as well other areas which are more clicking into place. So that has been present to a certain extent in my childhood, as my mother didn't do much. She didn't do all the wrong shit. <laughs> and and, and she, she gave me unconditional love that supported me and asked me a lot of questions and arose my curiosity 
that I have to dig and I have to find by myself. And that later manifested into whatever I wanted it to manifest in my life. And so, mom, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, I think this is also a role for us as partners, as uh, wives, husbands, parents, brothers, sisters, to, to also support this because we all need that that self-education. That's the best parenting advice I've ever heard. And I'm going to think about that a lot. I have two young children and great, my greatest um, value in life. And I, everything I do ultimately is is a self-exploration so that I can be better for them. And that sounds like it's exactly what uh, everyone should be doing to, uh, one, give their, themselves an opportunity to explore their emotions and, and their feelings and, and who they are, and, and also for your children. So thanks, you know, that was, that was awesome. Sure. Sure. Don't, don't, I just want to offer one last thing about it is, of course, this idea sounds great, but when sure. you go to apply it, of course, you will meet many difficulties, which good. Yep. You should deal with those difficulties. For example, how do I facilitate these scenarios for my child? And this has to be struggled with. This has to be contemplated. This has to be pursued. I don't want to offer as solutions, even when I have them, because again, I rob you the opportunity. But if you wish to really become a better parent, you should devote time for this. And this is the most precious thing that you can give to your child, not money. You can give your child your time. That's the most precious thing. This thought, this care. And then you will discover that many of those conditions and those situations in which you allow the child to really receive that experience they involve some things that we often slap a negative context on. And that's a huge challenge, especially in North America, but nowadays Western culture. And unfortunately, this is you see the, the difficulty, for example, of democracy dealing with certain, certain instances these days, certain occurrences. We reach a point where this fake good that comes from a good orientation, but have misled the good for something else, it reached uh, the ceiling. And uh, now you have to facilitate certain evils, I would even dare to say, in order to create the real good. The real good is not human, moral, good, bad. It is related to awareness. More aware, good more good, less aware, less good. And that is oftentimes require experiences. For example, experiencing hunger to a certain extent really develops something inside of us. But we, we've been robbed this opportunity most, most of our lives. And, and this is something that, of course, I don't recommend you to starve your child. But for example, I remember a scenario where my dad took me on a walk in nature and I was really small. And he miscalculated, he thought it was a very short walk, and it ended up being this six-hour walk. And he didn't take food with him. But I didn't experience it as something that he did to me, because I realized he just made a mistake, and now we are here, and we have to finish this. And this created a chain of events inside of me. It's only years after that I realized that such opportunities helped me get something. We used to go hunting with our parents. We used to experience the need to not move for many hours, to be quiet, to smell, um, to, to, to do very physically effortful things. 
And these evils are really necessary for certain growth, certain self-education. And yet society is removing that from, from our front mirror, right? Or from in front of us. We just, we simply can't and or making it harder. Yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Organifi. I have an amazing offer for you right now that what they're calling the Sunrise to Sunset Kit, which is everything that I advocate, the green, the red, and the gold, plus free 30-count travel packs um, with every purchase. So if you head over to Organifi.com slash muscle, you're going to get hooked up with 20% off. This is a product that I continue to use every day. And the gold for me, if you're someone who has a sweet tooth, um, which I don't often, but sometimes I do, is a really nice way to end your day, like post-dinner snack instead of a high sugary um, dessert. This is a delicious way to do something good for yourself and ultimately feel good in the process and help yourself have a better relaxing night and a great sleep. Um, the, the green specifically is something that I never go without. We use it every day, loaded with some incredible organic apt- uh, superfoods and adaptogenic herbs to kick off your day. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle and take advantage of this incredible offer with their Sunrise to Sunset hit. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Buy Optimizers. Well, Optimizers are longest standing sponsor of the podcast, and that's because their products work. I believe in them, and you believe in them as our customers and our uh, listeners ultimately, and they keep showing up for us. We want to show up for them. So if you're not already using magnesium, if you're not already using mass enzymes, if you're not already using Capex, if you're not already using their amazing nootropic products, head over to bioptimizers.com. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, bioptimizers.com, and use the code MUSCLE10 to get hooked up with 10% off. These are just truly incredible products. And the thing I love about them is they're foundational. They're things that everyone can use and everyone can benefit from. Um, the magnesium is the best. The, the mass enzymes are, are non-negotiables for me. They are always in my medicine cabinet. And they've got this incredible array of uh, very, very useful products that are really well formulated. And I've actually been diving into the nootropics a little bit more recently. Um, you know, obviously, how we show up mentally is a big, big advantage or potentially disadvantage in your life. And I'm really loving some of their custom nootropics. Uh, head over to bioptimizers.com. Use the code MUSCLE10. I think we have, we both have a passion for you tell me I don't want to put words in your mouth but so, somewhere between health and healing is, is like this bridge that or this this gap that I'm trying to bridge is like you know there's there's people out there who obviously need some time and attention to heal but for me it's just really like implementing basic health practices and as you said in your book is like you you pursue the typical allopathic path so much and realize there's something missing right you really realize there's there's more than just the the biology. There's more than just the biochemistry, right? And that's really where I wanted to kind of kind of dive into from both sides, right? And I'd love to start with your story. We're recording, so you can just kind of go. And I'd love to start with your story because it's so fascinating how you kind of were sent down this path of wanting to cure cancer, which is a very bold dream for such a young girl. Yes, that was a long time ago. My God. <laughs> And uh, I I just got exposed to the uh, illness pretty early in life. 
you know, and uh, lost someone that I uh, very much admired. And then, you know, I had this amazing privilege. My mother was a phenomenal doctor, and I basically grew up in her office. And, you know, from very early on, because she didn't necessarily always have childcare or anything like that, I you know, would, would go on with her on house visits. She would teach me how to, you know, bandage legs and things like that. And and um, so I, I was just kind of groomed in that mindset. But then seeing so many people who uh, were affected by cancer, that definitely piqued my interest and my ambition to do something about that. I always had this sense about my life that I was going to do something that was going to change medicine. That was going to really, you know, evolve healing. And I didn't know what that would be like. And so, you know, I went to medical school, but it never satisfied my hunger to to understand, you know, why do people get sick? How does our mind affect who we are? And what are we doing here? Because it's it's sort of, you know, the entire question of the spiritual journey who are we? Why are we here? Why are we suffering? If if I was just born and this is my first time around, uh, you know, why do I have per- certain propensities? And so uh, the journey of understanding that uh, has led me down many different pathways and roads and international travel and sort of, so I endeavored to educate my mind in these different areas. What basically happened was, uh, so during medical school, I then started a PhD in pathology because I wanted to go into cancer research. But then I also wanted to know more about healing. And what had happened was I had visited my brother, I think I was in my teens, and um, got a reading from a psychic. And she knew so much about my life. I was like, how the heck did she know all of that? And at some point, you know, I had many different sort of opportunities to go study. You know, I'd been in China, I'd studied acupuncture, I'd been in South Africa and studied some healing work there. And then I just met Tenzin Chodrak and I was contemplating of going to Dharamsala in India. And, uh, but then I said, you know, what about that psychic? And so I, <laughs> I, I found this lady and I asked, I said, you know, can I come to America and study with you? And so I did. And that led me to other healers and a whole different, you know, world in which people were endeavoring to heal themselves spiritually, mentally, emotionally. They understood that certain traumas were affecting them. So it was just a very, you know, broad education. And as you know, you know, sometimes in life, you just you move forward and here's a door and you move through it. And then, you know, your knowledge expands and you get to ask bigger questions. So uh, this is sort of, you know, the, the early, early background and finished my residency in internal medicine and then became a geriatrician. And I was content with that because eventually I found run the School of Enlightenment and I found an academy where I really was trained in mindfulness mind and in disciplines of the mind. And it took a long time, you know. And so I kind of, you know, I was doing my job and and my work in medicine. But then all of my vacation time I spent, you know, at the school. And a lot of people attack me these days because, you know, they say, oh, I'm part of, you know, Rundle School of Enlightenment. It's like, okay, People, we are in a spiritual war, and Rantha has been warning about what's been going on for 40 years, you know, and has 
prophesized, you know, who is enslaving the earth? And, and he said 30 years ago, never take a government vaccine, you know, never take the chip. And he said, you know, viruses are created so that uh, vaccines can be administered. And so that completely, you know, opened- You're saying this 30 years ago, you're saying? Over 30 years ago, and this is documented in, in, in the prophecies. And so, so when people are telling me I'm a CIA agent because I belong to the school, I'm just like, oh my God, people so, do your homework. I don't want to assume that anyone knows anything about what Ramtha's School of Enlightenment is or who Ramtha is. Yeah. I know what it is because I read your book. But prior to that, I would have no idea. And I think as soon as people start hearing you know, these claims of prophecies and, and seeing the future, the alarm bells go off and they go, hold on, I'm in here. Hold on. What's, what's happening here? So I'd love for you to to explain what that is and then why um, these why we should take that seriously. The idea is basically, you know, we're divine spiritual beings and that we, uh, everybody has abilities of knowing and of healing. And, you know, this is one school that has allowed me to train in certain ways and understanding how to create reality. And so this is, I don't really care for people to take it seriously. I explained in my book that the basis of a new model of medicine is really the integration of science and spirit. And how would we do that? And in science, the closest that it takes us to a, a spiritual model, it would be quantum physics that says, you know, observation on the quantum field creates personal reality. They they say, hey, the physicists say this is just, you know, part of, of uh, you know, experiments and it doesn't apply to humans. But there are some enlightened experiments, uh, uh, physicists who really say, hey, consciousness is primary. You know, we live in a holographic universe and that that is what creates material reality. So if you're talking about health and healing, it would mean uh, in a model of light medicine uh, that incorporates this idea of, okay, we are spiritual beings. What we think, what we feel is actually creating reality. Well, it creates reality in your own body. Mm-hmm. And then what what type, uh, what kind of, of science could explain that? So biophysics says, you know, we're a biophotonic light field, and this can be either harmonious, which means coherent light field, or incoherent, which is an inharmonious light field. And literally, it is the photonic light that is in charge of biochemical reactions. So, for example, science knows that if your retina gets hit by one photon that can set off a cascade of 100,000 chemical reactions, so the idea is, if you are, for example, depressed or anxious or resentful, then that causes an inharmony in your body. That seems pretty logical. In, for example, molecular biology, they looked at telomere length, and that some telomeres are capping structures on the chromosomes, and they're related to to aging. So the shorter your telomeres, the faster you're, you're aging. And you can also lengthen these telomeres, meaning you have an age reversal process that you can uh, uh, use in the body if you're endeavoring to heal it. And so again, it's been shown that these negative emotions actually shorten lifespan by reducing telomere length. So it's just about that connection of understanding how do we get to a new medical paradigm 
that doesn't look at humans as robots, which is what, you know, now this whole transhumanist movement is trying to make us into, but into something that we truly are, which is, you know, that, that the healing part is of our mind. Yes, we need to support our body as well. Uh, and and so how do you understand that? And it is one way of understanding that. You know, many people have different different viewpoints. They they come from other spiritual traditions. This just happened to have been mine, and I tried to explain in my book how did I get to my conclusions. Yeah, and you did a wonderful job. Your book is fantastic. I recommend it to so many people. I'd love for you to just explain for a second a little bit more about biophysics. And I'll, I'll tell you, I interview a lot of great people on this podcast, and, and it's always people who are, I think that the people who are at the cutting edge, the smartest people in medicine, who are starting to realize that biophysics is the path to healing, right? So, you know, it starts with biology, and then people are looking at biochemistry, and then the people who are really at the tip of the spear are the ones who are going, you know what, It's there's something beyond that, and they're looking at biophysics, which is why I was so interested to have you on, to have you kind of explain in the way you did so eloquently in your book. Like, what is biophysics? What is light medicine? And how do we start ultimately implementing best practices of light medicine and biophysics? So the idea of, of again, biophysics is saying that all things are made of this principle of light, okay? And that you know, is, is that a theory or have we proven that? Well, so if you think about subatomic particles, and then if you if you even go further uh, in the quantum field, you have all potentials available to you, right? Yep. How does how does a potential manifest into material reality? It is via observation, mm-hmm. and so so in biophysics, it is looking at. The uh, the mechanism of of biological function that is modulated by photonic light, and it's not just that; it's also phonons. So photons are subatomic particles of light, and phonons are subatomic particles of sound. And we are this harmony, this conglomerate of light and sound. And in fact, there is a researcher by the name of Dr. Peter Gurayev, who unfortunately is deceased, but last year was nominated for the Nobel Prize of Medicine for his linguistic gene wave model. Well, what did he say? He said that our DNA is a light and sound hologram that actually can be captured, and he did experiments with this. For example, he looked at the uh, the DNA of a one species of a frog, and he captured this hologram of light and sound via laser, and he transferred that hologram to another species of a frog that changed its development to the original genetic sequence that was transmitted. He did this in humans and used it for healing. And what he did was, for example, in a child who had uh, trisomy, um, which is uh, Down syndrome. So they were uh, developing, this child was developing with the abnormalities, neurological deficits, inability to to walk, developmental delay. And this child had a sibling who was healthy. 
And so they had enough of a match of, of the genetic sequence. And so they, they uh, captured the light and sound DNA sequence or the quantum signature of the, the sibling and played it to the child and the child started developing normal same thing happened in cystic fibrosis so the idea is that that the information of who we are is not just physical but it exists in uh, subatomic realms and it can be encoded in the spin states of photonic light and so uh, this is important in the sense of even what we're seeing now is that people always think, you know, in order to genetically modify something, you have to splice and dice and do CRISPR gene editing. No, we have up to genetics. We have magnetobiology. You can apply magnetic fields, light fields, sound fields, and, and, uh, and our DNA will modify and evolve. And so I think that, that this, the, the idea of my concepts of, of light medicine where I said, look, if we look at us uh, from a perspective of we're a, co a coherent light field and that all diseases we know in principles of aging are related to mitochondrial dysfunction, meaning the powerhouse of the cells is decreasing. And then, you know, there's an inflammatory process that happens and an entire cascade of of gene uh, expression that is related to senescence or aging. Well, so what we can do is if we look at it from this light perspective, is we can increase the coherence and the amount of light in the system, and that will actually downregulate disease-producing genes and upregulate uh, health-promoting genes. So you can use for healing light therapy in different frequencies like i described in my book the blue room uh, with ultraviolet blue light and then other things like sound frequency we know about healing frequency 111 hertz 432 hertz all of these these frequencies can also be used for for healing and they have different genetic expressions uh, that they are addressing and so then uh, we can use this in conjunction for example with supplements well, now we look at supplements, and what I said is, what I looked at was that if all molecules are electron donors or they give off electricity, and an electron, if it if it jumps orbitals, it actually gives off photonic light, you can say, hey, anything that gives off electricity is also a light donor. And so what I looked at is at the spectral emission frequency of different molecules like curcumin, like methylene blue, and saw, okay, if they are a very high electron donor, they have tremendous capacity of healing, not just from the molecular perspective, because what I'm saying is that a lot of research is being done and says, hey, curcumin is maybe affecting blood sugar, or, or it's affecting this other thing. But really, then you have a thousand studies and it does all of these different things but if you had an overarching viewpoint that looks at it more it's like what is the capacity of this molecule to give electricity or light to a biophotonic light system and if it is high for example like methylene blue which is a direct electron donor then its healing capacity is also high and so then you increase the light, you increase the electricity, that increases oxygen delivery, and you create health. And so it's a complete system 
that that you can look at every level of material reality, be that on the subquantum, be that on the atomic, molecular, protein structures, until you get to gross, gross physical matter. So you said an unstable brain, and I think that kind of brings us back to where we started in the beginning. You talk about these different areas of the brain that may be misfiring or not, not coordinated. Is that really what you're referring to when you say someone has an unstable brain? It's just like some area that's maybe overactive or others that are underactive? In a sense, uh, it goes much deeper than that. It means that the brain can be pushed off of, uh, its track very easily. So if you go in and someone's flashing light in, in a movie theater and you're going into theater, you, you have a very unstable brain. It, it, if, if you get very reactive to everything around you and you can feel your state changes, whether it's anger or, or, or crying or, or just reactivity, um, it's not it's not very stable at that point. We want to get it so the amygdala is not screaming, you know, or the insulin is not overreacting to threat detection. And it, it can happen in different aspects. A lot of people auditorily and visually, the this, this sensory processing becomes very unstable at their weak point. So you can be fine all day until you hit that point of exhaustion in the evening. And those instabilities come up and show you basically who you are, where the cracks in the pavement are, um, whether you're more sensitive to light, whether you're more sensitive to sound, whether you're just irritated with everything around you. So you're looking at these components as you bring up your resilience, those things fall away. So it gives your, your, your ceiling a much higher gauge to enact and engage with everything around you without being taxed. So, so someone who's experiencing that, you know, this is maybe a vast generalization, but is it like the overactivity of the amygdala? They're just, amygdala is just firing kind of uh, uncontrollably and, and they're getting those those responsive or those reactive uh, emotions being kicked off? Yeah, it, it can be part of it. I, typically, we have a, a number of different networks that feed into it that are overfeeding, you know, and telling that, oh, hey, there's threat here. Let's let's react. Or underfeeding it. You you get people that are just they 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 miss the cues. They 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 miss all the things that can lead them into danger. Hmm. Or or they're creating the danger themselves just based on, on those very lightly stable or unstable networks in the brain. And we, we all have different parts of the brain that are stronger than others or overproducing and um we just have to gauge what the brain map says with your experiential aspect so we'll go through some testing on that and see okay wh wh where do you fall in this peak performance level and what do we what do we increase do do we bring up your resilience do we bring up your attention do we bring that those wisdom centers online so you're not reactive how, how is your emotional reactivity? You know, how is the emotional intelligence? Are you able to gauge something? That's incredibly fascinating. So it sounds like, I'm hearing it correctly, we can isolate specific either aspects of the brain or functions of the brain that allow us to isolate specific desired end states. So if I want to be better emotionally regulated, if I want to be more capable of learning, I can, you can specifically identify the areas that are deficient, bring it up to what you would identify as a peak performance brain state, and then create that. Yes, absolutely, 100%. And, and within that, what we tend to do is once certain areas are, are very stable and very strong, 
they tend to lift other things up. So if there's an energy deficit in a certain area and a certain frequency, it can affect this flew across the, the whole range of frequencies. And once that's stabilized, all of a sudden the others start working better too. So it could have some really incredible benefits uh, across the board. What would cause an energy deficit in a specific area of the brain? Like other than, you know, blunt force concussion type stuff, is there something with the sleep? Is this the brief? Global, typically. And depending on the weakness of the brain, It'll come up in certain areas, and, and and we'll see it pop up on one side or the other, prefrontally or in the back. And as it progresses, it becomes what we call blue brain. And the reason why we call it blue brain is the gauge on our brain map that when you're a, a few deviations down um, out of the norm of optimal functioning, that the energy is just not there to produce those frequencies, and. So you have a, a number of different things. Environment is a big thing. People that have had, you know, everything from uh, Lyme's disease to COVID, we'll see a lot of blue brains with those. Um, certain heavy metal impact it, uh, impacts it. Lack of nutrient, the proper nutrient, whether you're not getting enough magnesium or potassium, copper, or whatever going on in your life. And a lot of people with... Um, Irritation in the gut or Crohn's or IBS or something like that will also have a deficit too that we've seen across the board. So we always get the gut balanced out there too because that's a big input into the brain. Glad you said that. So blue brain, just to understand it in maybe layman's terms, is it like slow brain, a brain brain that isn't willing to or able to adapt to the environment of the circumstance, create the state that we're looking to? Yeah, it doesn't create the state, but think of it more as torque. So we don't have the strength to get going. If you if you're pulling a big load, you just don't have it. You don't have the energy to output that type of, of mental facility to get into those states. What would be some of the symptoms that someone sitting at home right now might be able to identify themselves as saying, Hey, I I have something that may resemble a blue brain, I should do something about this? Chronic fatigue is the big one. Afternoon slumps are a big thing when you're pushed to a certain point neurologically had a stressful day you've had a number of meetings you've had some something physically tacked you and you're not able to focus or plan or, or do anything sequential after that it's always a big thing you're not able to get into creative phase. you're not able to jump into flow but let's say you know you're a musician or, or you're a pilot you, you, you're just you're getting by, but you're not getting into the state that you know where, where the clarity is, where the ease of function is. One of my mentors early on told me, anything worth doing is worth doing effortlessly. And that means, it doesn't mean it's worth doing with, in, in a sense, that it really gets into uh, mastery. If you've done something quite a few times and, and mastered it, it becomes very easy in the flow. Uh, someone that hasn't done something very well for a long time, especially someone with blue brain, is they able to get into those areas effortlessly. It's a lot of effort to get there. And by the time they get there, they're neurologically taxed and they don't stay there. So it may be a blip and then they're, they're back down again. Stress is inevitable, right? Stress is not going anywhere. But your ability to be resilient to it changes, it adapts. 
And if you're not intentionally subjecting yourself to things that are that are hard physiologically, hard, hard psychologically, then your resilience gets worse. It gets weaker. So we have to intentionally subject ourselves to things that are bigger. And the way you think about this is the stress bucket, right? We all have this imaginary stress bucket. Some are small, some are big. The bigger my bucket, the more adaptable I am to stress. So my first objective for this planet, yeah, we got to build that bucket. And, w- and what does that look like? Hot, hot export, cold export, breath work, nature, meditation, nutrition, optimization, gut health optimization, hormone optimization. All right, so it's all the basic things that you guys are already doing. Uh, and some some may be more important than others. One of the biggest levers we have is movement, right? Is muscle even more specifically, right? Movement and muscle have enormous implications on you know the ability to be become nutritionally resilient, certainly physically, you know, as far as physical resilience, certainly. And then the exercise process itself is a way to become more physiological and more psychological resilient, right? So we have the physical movement and the nutritional or metabolic resilience coming as a result of exercise, as a result of the actual muscle building process itself. And on the other end is the exercise process is the thing that's going to build greater psychological resilience. So those things are, in my opinion, certainly the, the biggest lever that I know of to help people improve their their resilience on a regular basis in a controlled way. I love the idea of you guys constantly being aware of of your tendencies, right? So do do you have tendencies to do the things that your coach asks of you? Do you have tendencies to make excuses as to why you can't? Do you have tendencies to make excuses or or maybe do it, but but be kind of begrudgingly? What's the dialogue going on in your head? And if you can identify the dialogue in your head, realize the objective needs to be, I'm going to move toward this, this increased resilience because if I'm not, I'm getting worse, right? If I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. There's no such thing as status quo, like especially after the age of 35. There's no such thing as staying the same. You're getting worse if you're not if you're not paying attention to each area of, of these of these resilience. So be super aware of that, man. Because what we don't ever want to do is wake up in one year or five years or ten years, looking, feeling, and performing in a way that we never wanted to, right? And for many of you guys, the looking part drops in importance, right? Looking is very important when we're young, or you know, we want to look amazing. But I say most of my guys after the age of forty are like looking is usually number three on the list, right? I want to feel amazing, I want to perform amazing, and then I want to look amazing, right? And so if we're if we're if we're balancing it that way, most guys that I come into is like, yeah, no, I just want to feel awesome. Man. Like I want to, I want to be able to run, jump, play, wake up in the morning with huge amounts of energy so I can crush life. Then I want to you know be able to perform in the gym, I want a bit high physical capability. Then the third was I just want to look awesome. And how about what do you guys feel about that? How many people prioritize the way they look as the top top of the totem pole? No judgment, just like I trust me, I was there for twenty five years. Yeah, yeah, good man, dude. Like good, right? That's awesome. And I hope that stays in a top priority for you forever. And I hope you also maintain physical capability. Like my judgment of physical capability is, you know, my kids are beastly athletes, and I need to be able to kick their ass when they're in their in their prime, right? Sixteen, eighteen years old, like, and I got to be, I got to keep up. So I'm not going to allow my my physical capability to drop. Like I don't care if I look thirty pounds lighter than I was when I was at my biggest or fifty pounds. I don't. Like I, I need to be able to run, jump, play, do gymnastics, flip. You know all of these types of things. That's my kind of north star. I always speak about the body you have on the outside is very often an expression of what's happening on the inside, right? Your your health on the inside expresses outwardly. So if your body is is not metabolically healthy, if your body is not, not 
hormonally healthy. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to take this pill or take this medicine or take this hormone and feel better. If your body doesn't look right on the outside, it's not a deficiency in testosterone, right? You may be deficient in testosterone, but it's not the thing that's going to make you look better, right? It's fixing your health that will ultimately make the testosterone go up which will make you look better. So health is is should be the primary objective. You know, the, re- the reason when I speak about muscle intelligence, I say lean, healthy, muscular in that order on purpose, because I think those are our primary three targets. You know, being lean, I think you guys could you guys could say differently, is one of the single biggest levers we have for health. Right? You see people that are healthy. Again, you could certainly be lean and not healthy, but usually when you're not lean, you're not healthy in general, right? So we want to become as lean as we possibly can. In a healthy way, uh, naturally, and then you know, obviously, we want to be have health as a as a byproduct, or certainly a focus. How many of you guys can relate to going to the gym to do cardio sometime, and dragging your feet and and bitching about it the whole way, and and just like nutting your way through it and suck the whole time. Your attitude sucked, and you did it, but the whole time it was kind of begrudgingly dragging your dragging your feet, dragging your ass. Anybody anybody can relate to that. Would it be possible to do the exact same cardio and the exact same transformation process? Nothing changes. Same diet, same workouts, same cardio, everything's the same. But the one thing that changes is your mindset. You go, holy shit, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to eat the best foods in the world. I'm so lucky to be wealthy enough to have the best foods in the world. I'm so lucky to have my body that works and, and these these biceps that contract between this brain that, that shows up for me. And just truly honoring your body, right? So think of the difference. It could even be the same physical outcome. I don't think it would be. There'd probably be some differences, but it could be the same physical outcome, same process, same physical outcome. What's the difference at the end? That, right? Your perception of the event and who you become in the process. So I'm constantly reinforcing, dragging my feet, doing things begrudgingly. That becomes my personality. That becomes a characteristic, right? A character trait. And so one of the things I learned just like, I don't know, maybe maybe by happenstance, maybe through pain was this reality that, man, I just, I'm so blessed to be able to go to the gym. I'm so blessed to have an amazing community like this, an amazing team of coaches to have a body that shows up for me, to have a body that I just love, man. My body shows up, it looks great, it feels great, it performs well every day. It supports an adventure. And that mindset alone, you know, for me, just is a complete game changer, man. And like, I, I wasn't always that way. I was oftentimes the complete opposite. I was like, oh, fuck, I got to do cardio, I got to eat these damn chicken, I got to eat these sweet potatoes. It, oh, it was terrible. And that... If you can become conscious of it and choose who you're becoming in the process, I think is the single greatest opportunity that exercise presents you because every time you go in the gym, you're facing that that weakness. You're facing that guy who, who wants to quit. You're facing that guy who doesn't want to go. You're facing that guy who says, I can't do another rep. You're facing that guy who says, I don't know, I don't want to do this exercise or this hurts or this sucks. And you get the opportunity to intentionally build it. So it sounds like you're lacking, Guillaume, is this intention, Right. So when we go to the gym, we have the opportunity to become more conscious or less conscious, right? So when I go to the gym, we can we can turn on really loud music, we can just zone out and just go, we just fucking go, gas pedal and go. Or we can become intentional about what we're doing and actually curate uh, how hard we're pushing, how far we're pushing. Again, not necessarily one is right or wrong. I think they both have a place, 
But I really have a belief that if I want to become a better version of myself, the single greatest opportunity in exercise is to become more present and more mindful in my body, in my thoughts during that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as an example, two weeks ago, I was in, in Spain with Dorian Yates and myself, Gavin, and one of my clients, Gareth, were there. Gavin's our head coach. Dorian, you guys are doing eight, six-time Mr. Olympia, known for being the hardest working bodybuilder ever, although I would have given him a run for his money. And we're like, all right, man, we'll do a leg workout. Let's go. And uh, so I think it could have been one of those things where some of you may, may dread that psychologically. But anybody, if I said, hey, guys, anyone want to fly to Toronto tomorrow and train legs with me, I'll pay the flight. Anyone will come. Would anyone go, hell no? Would anyone say, hell no? Like, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I'm not ready. Right. So what that says to me is like, well, that's that's some level of either scared, you know, being afraid or inadequacy that you could build by stepping into that challenge, right? Nobody take this personally, but I would say that's little, you know, small B Ben. I'm calling my little bitch, and I'm like, hey, the little bitch doesn't want to do it. I'm like, okay, well, how about we get a little, we get a little, you know, we grow up a little bit, get all ballsy, and we actually just go do it. Um, and I think the opportunity to develop that and see where you where you tend to be weaker, where you tend to want to quit, or you tend to want to avoid the hard things, is a beautiful opportunity because it transfers into life. It's not just that it can happen in the gym, right? That confidence and that character comes through commitment, right? That's kind of our three taglines and muscle intelligence for 2023 is confidence and character through commitment. I did a nine-hour mountain climb with a friend of mine, Alex Fiata. And the first 90 minutes of it was just the worst 90 minutes of my life. It was just torture. I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to get up to the top of this thing. How am I going to do nine hours when the first 90 minutes was just like, it was like every step was just burning. I was like, I think I had lactic acid in my eyeballs. Like, my, like so, so, so hard. It was 300 pounds big. I was like, I don't care. I'm, I got to do this. I said I was going to do it. I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, I just kind of stopped. And I looked around and I was like, how am I doing? I'm sitting here and I'm in my head. I'm like, it's the most beautiful day. I'm out with two of my best friends in the world. I'm just going to enjoy this. And I, I slowed my breathing down. I calmed myself down. I said, thank you. I looked up and I was so grateful. And and no exaggeration, the next six and a half, seven hours, like I felt like I floated up the mountain. It's like, God, what just happened? Like I literally went from from like being in, in my own bubble, my own head of hell to like this most amazing experience like that. Because I just, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do it anyways. I'm not going to quit. I might as well enjoy it. I was I was blown away by how different it was. I always says, do the thing you don't want to do, man. Because because here's the thing in life: it's so easy not to, it's so easy to do, and it's so easy not to do. Right? It's so easy to not sit down every morning and meditate. It's so easy, right? It's so easy to skip the cardio. It's so easy to, to eat the donut. That's that's easy, man. Right? Talk about psychological resilience. Well, don't do it. See how if, or or do it conversely, right? Like if it's about the, the cold shower or the ten minutes of meditation or the hour of meditation. How many of you guys meditate consistently or, or meditate ever? So how many of you guys have meditated for at least one hour once in your life? Anyone? Okay. So there's something magical that happens in meditation. And, and for me, it's usually around like 40, 45 minutes. Something just magical that happens. It never happens for me in the first 20, 30 minutes. Well, the better I get or the more consistent I get, the, the earlier it happens. But usually it happens somewhere around 40, 45 minutes where it's a whole new depth. It's a whole new understanding of what meditation is. And it's it's always right after, if you guys have meditated for a long time, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's always right after you're just about to quit. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. 
I don't want to do this anymore. I get so many things to do. And if you can will through that, if you can just be like, nope, I'm sitting here and I'm doing it. Right on the other side of that is always a breakthrough, almost always. And there's always this huge amount of like resistance. It's a really great metaphor. There's like, my body hurts, my legs are falling asleep, my ass is numb, I got the scratch on my nose, but I'm still going to stay here, right? I'm just going to breathe through it. And if you do, or when you do, it's, there's just amazing breakthroughs in the other side. Anyone ever experienced that? I think, I think there's, there's some important metaphors there. Anyways, it's talking about psychological resilience. When, when things start to get challenging is when you guys start to get stronger, or we start to get stronger as humans. But I'll tell you guys, the key that I'm experiencing right now in my life is if it's not a must, it's not going to happen. And, and never before in my life has this been an issue for me because I've never been quite as busy as I am right now in business and in life. I've always just, training was just an enormous priority in my life. It was like top priority, just did it every day. Like I, I never missed. And I, to, be, to be fair, I was also in Tampa three blocks away from my own gym. So it was very easy to get into the gym. I had the key. If I want to go three in the morning or three in the afternoon, I, whatever, I could go. Now being traveling is very different. So it's a very interesting time in my life. So what I encourage you guys to do is choose the one, two, or three things that that you find to be hard that also have a significant impact on your on your results. Right? Don't do something that like you're like, oh that that's hard for me, but it's not gonna impact and move me in the direction of my goals. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.